Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I'm one of your hosts, Phil Iscove. And I am your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your regular host, uh, Lord Ger- Lord Gerald Huffington IV, Earl of Saxby, eighth of his name, Ooh. and owner of the Cadbury Company. That's that actually not person? true. No, no, that's a person I made <laughs> up, and then I used a real company, and I was like, that's "Wait, I was like, is this a real contract?" Completely convinced. Yeah, I was like, "That sounds right." I mean, Cadbury could be owned by that person. Uh, well, with us today, back uh, our, our British authority uh, to talk with us about um, Howard's End, and specifically, specifically Howard's End, but Merchant Ivory um, is Tom Meissen. Tom, Hi. thank you for Benedict coming back. Benedict is unavailable, sorry. <laughs> so, please. Uh, uh, we would always take you over, Benedict. My... <laughs> my my wife and i were talking last night about like how you know we're really trying to diversify the guest list on the show yeah, more of course, people of color more queer people but every time there's a british thing you're like let's get tom and i'm let's like yes tom. he's I mean, british he, he is british. british and that's british? that's true yeah well regrettably i i probably am the best representative of edwardian britain this is what i'm saying like could we possibly uh, get someone better in 2023 to i'm the last person you should be inviting but Bring on the Edwardians, shove a pole up my ass and bring me on. (laughs) I just, I mean, listen, first and foremost, I want to go, I mean, to be completely honest and say I'd never seen this film before. So I I don't know really much about Merchant Ivory. um, So I'm thrilled that you both do. Um, But it also feels like this. So, I mean, I guess my question to you, Tom, is 
being an actor from the British school of acting, whatever that entails. Mm -hmm. I feel like Merchant Ivory is, or was, since uh, Merchant is no longer with us, and uh, John, uh, James Ivory is getting quite old, if I'm not mistaken. But was this sort yeah, of like do, the benchmark? No. No? Okay. So no. please tell so me. So I, yeah. I went to uh, drama school 10 years after, nine years after this. So it was, you know, let's sure. call it 10. Sure. Um, and so it was these Merchant Ivory, the golden Merchant Ivory films we're already 10 years old and even 10 years before I was at drama school they were films made for old people so it never really felt like something uh progressive so it did you know you go to to study anything it doesn't matter where you go you want to think about the future sure um and this definitely felt like looking back you may as well be putting in the same category as 1970s Royal Shakespeare company which to me then also meant the past and something to avoid and it's only as I've got older and realized that you know the the Shakespeare company of the 70s with John Barton which had Judi Dench and Ian McKellen and Ben Kingsley and David Suchet like that's absolutely what we should be studying Yeah, it's it's not emulating, but certainly understanding in order to bring on our generation, to carry the back on and go further. And it's actually only been in the last maybe two years that I've begun to think that about Merchant Ivory. Well, it's so obviously, Emily, I want to hear what you think about this. But I just from my perspective, just for because it it does sort of piggyback a little bit on what you're saying, Tom, which is, you know, there was this this moment that Alan Parker said that uh, Merchant Ivory was the Laura Ashley School of Filmmaking. And, and obviously, uh, Merchant uh, responded, that is a comment that will last longer than any of his films, (laughs) which I think is kind of amazing. Um, You know, Alan Parker, whatever, but I do think that Part of the reason I had never seen this film, part of the reason why I didn't feel much of a pull towards these movies is because they did feel like kind of old, stodgy movies for old people, right? And 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 that's an, an ignorant thing to have thought, but I was a kid and they weren't cool, so that's why I wasn't yeah. watching them. Now, watching this the other day, I found myself, as is the case with any good period piece, you see so much of the contemporary world in it and you see all the various things that we have or haven't learned from history. But Emily, you saw these films back in, I mean, not obviously in the night. I don't know when you saw these films, but when did you start watching them? I mean, I was born having seen these films. No, (laughs) um, I think I watched, I watched some of them in like high school, you know, like I, even by, even by that point, like Merchant Ivory was like a synonym for kind of boring and stodgy like this is the late 90s and um i i don't think i saw room with a view until much much later i know i saw howard's end and remains of the day because those are they had three best picture nominees which are room with a view and and howard's end and and remains of the day i think howard's end is, is probably my favorite i think it's just like i grew up at a time when you know merchant ivory was british cinema for two american perspectives especially to the perspective of a fucking teenager living in the middle of nowhere and then like 
Danny Boyle and um, uh, what's his pants? The, the lock stock and some guy, Richie and like, you know, a bunch of directors who just like their early films just seem like a 14 year old boy screaming at you. Fuck you, mom. Like, (laughs) like they became the face of British cinema and like, and like merchant ivory really fell out of favor. And I feel like in with call me by your name, they had this like resurgence and that's kind of like why had that was not made by merchant ivory at all, but like James ivory wrote it. And people were like, oh, that restrained longing can be very hot. Um, And so, like, people went back and revisited. And, like, they made so many movies. I, like, I've never heard of most of them. Correct. But, like, the ones that were hits are are good. They're just amazing. I I mean, they made 44 films together. I mean, (laughs) it's a fucking, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, And I would say, you know, gun to my head, I could name three you know what i mean most people only know the big ones right but it is interesting i believe and forgive me if this is wrong but i think that call me by your name is his only is james ivory's only personal oscar Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. which i think is interesting um it's definitely it's definitely like i was a big enough oscar watcher that Mm -hmm. every time they made a movie people were like maybe this will be the one that gets the juice back because there wasn't a long gap between room with a view and Howard's end in terms of Oscar attention, but there was like seven years, I think. So like there was a time when they kept making movies that didn't quite click. And like more, mm-hmm. I think actually, I think Morris is one of their best films and is one of their earliest films to depict gay yes. relationships, mm-hmm. but like yeah. uh, that, you know, didn't click with the Oscars for obvious reasons. So I think when was passage to India, that was after that was that, actually uh, David Lean. That uh, uh, Merchant oh, had I, nothing to do with that. I wasn't so. thinking about Passage of India. I was thinking about something else. I, I, it's I so A Room for the View is 85. Yes. So that's pretty early. And then there's Maurice in 87. Mm-hmm. And then, as you mentioned, there's like a big gap. There's Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, which I think some people like. I know that Joanne Woodward got an Oscar nomination I've never for seen it. it. Maybe it's I've great. I've never seen it either. Yeah. Um, and then 92 is Howard's and 93 is Remains of the Day, which is pretty crazy. Like, those are back-to-back movies. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then it's Jefferson in Paris, Surviving Picasso. Like, they kind of I Golden remember Bowl. Jefferson in Paris was supposed to be, like, the one. And then it came yeah. out and everyone was like, no, that like, sucks. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. It's And then, you know, it it is really interesting watching this film as well like emma thompson and anthony hopkins are also sort of like locked in these two films too i think in a lot of people's perspectives do you know what i mean like hopkins wins obviously for for sons of the lambs the year before howard's end doesn't even get nominated for howard's end which is kind of surprising i have a crazy i have a theory on this oh please what is i think they couldn't figure out if he was supporting or lead I think that his oh. votes got split across the two categories because he's the lead of the second half and he's barely in the barely first in the half. half. And that's such a like that is such an easy Oscar like trap to fall into because they sure. don't know where to put you. That makes sense, actually. Uh, and I, I would argue it was, it was the nominees um, just for, for your Pacino, uh, Pacino Denzel Washington uh, for oh, Malcolm well. X. Malcolm X. Uh, Stephen Ray for Crying Game, Clint Eastwood for Crying Unforgiven, Game. and RDJ for Chaplin. Um, my <laughs> my assumption is that <laughs> my assumption <laughs> is that probably Robert Downey Jr. gets squeezed out had Hopkins got the nomination, but maybe I'm wrong. What if it was Pacino? What if Pacino <laughs> got 
what if what if like a bunch of time travelers from 2023 were like get rid of pacino but the, here's the interesting thing too looking at supporting actor for what it's worth just because he didn't get into either of this category supporting actor gene hackman wins for unforgiven jay davidson mm-hmm. is nominated for crying game uh nicholson for a few good men pacino again for glengarry glenn ross and david pamer for mr saturday night um a movie that doesn't exist um really <laughs> but that's actually um, one of the early superhero movies it's about <laughs> mr saturday night he swoops in on he oh he's only a superhero on saturdays but he has infinite power <laughs> saturday night actually not even during he's, the day he's played by billy crystal which is like weird <laughs> casting but it really works yeah did you see the play emily speaking of because no. was no. it a musical or was it just a play i think it was a musical i think it was a musical too <laughs> But anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting that Hopkins gets snubbed and then literally gives the Oscar to Emma Thompson as the one that announces it and gives oh, it to yeah. her, which is kind of fantastic. But um, well, yeah, this, I mean, th- what we were saying earlier about how at the time we disregarded Merchant Ivory as just being a lot of old fashioned shithouse. Well, <laughs> it's that you could say exactly the same uh from the the oscar choices that you know everyone always says you know there should be an award that's given out 10 years after a film is released and which one well i think now looking back this is far superior to you know it's it's funny you say that um scent of a woman oh (laughs) i so it's funny because I tweeted the other day because I was I was just flipping around on TV and Birdman just happened to pop up. And I was like, how did Birdman get ever, like, wh- how did it like hoodwink the fucking Oscars? It's like it's it's a crazy thing to me, a movie that already kind of doesn't exist and no one talks about. And I mean, mm. I do think that Boyhood is the superior film and it was those two kind of going up against each other. But I would also know. say, too, that like. There's lots of movies that came out that year in 2014. I would say Grand Budapest has aged better not, probably than, I mean. Not um, to totally, not to totally divert us into the 2014 yeah. Oscars, a topic that's germane to our show. But um, I, I'm I think, sorry. I think if you were to give the 10 year later award like or whatever, I think it would go to Grand Budapest. I think that's I, the one with yeah. the longest. Yeah, that's Ray Fine's Oscar without yes. a doubt as well. And didn't get nominated. Which is no, which is astonishing. <laughs> but it's this is all to say, Tom, to your initial point, which I agree with, which is that like this movie gets nominated in '92. It's nominated for a whole slew of awards. It wins. Um, forgive me, but it wins. Uh, screenplay. screenplay. It wins screenplay, art direction, and uh, bu- 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 actress. So it wins three. It's nominated for picture, director, actress, supporting actress, screenplay art direction, cinematography, costume design, score. Like, that's a that's a huge swath of, of awards. Um, for a movie that does, you know, quite well. Well, who's, who's the supporting actress? Vanessa, Vanessa Redgrave. Redgrave or... Yeah, she was... She she's great. great, yeah. Although, I mean... Who won? Helena, Helena's great. I think she's terrific. Yeah, yeah. who, who won, won is... It was Marissa Tomei for My Cousin Vinny, the performer. Oh, the USA. <laughs> USA. <laughs> But she's great in that movie. I mean, she, she is, right? It. Yeah, yeah, she is. Uh, but, it, and... but yeah, it's like, so Vanessa Redgrave, there's this uh, thing that I learned, which I think is kind of heartbreaking. And as an actor, Tom, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. So they they basically, they wanted Vanessa Redgrave. And for scheduling purposes, they were having a tough time locking in her deal. And then they eventually finally get it locked in. She shows up on set and she thinks she's playing Margaret. 
So no. she sits down in the makeup chair and they start to put on the old person makeup and she's no. like, Oh, I guess I'm playing Ruth. Uh-huh. No, really? That's pretty sad. Oh and I'm God. just like it breaks my heart for a myriad of reasons. But first of all, what fucking reps let their actors show up without you, knowing what role they're playing? Do you remember when Michael Shannon like gave all those interviews about how he was in Batman v Superman, but he had like claw hands and they just got reported credulously? What if Vanessa Redgrave is the British Michael Shannon? She just makes shit up and people are like, well, yeah, that must be true. And make them just all look like asshole ageists that didn't give her the role. <laughs> But I, I just, she's wonderful in this movie, um, but she's not in it that long. I mean, she's only no, in it for the first half hour. What I love about this film yeah. is so many actors in it, it's their best work. I think it's it's her best work. It's Helen's Emma Thompson's it. best work. It, Helen Bonham Carter's best work. I think Anthony Hopkins, who you know is a god to me, I think it's one of his best and so it's amazing that it hasn't that it wasn't more appreciated and i think yeah. and and also amazing that it's not remembered as being a film packed full of incredible performances and so many of the perif- um sam west who plays uh leonard bast i fucking He's love amazing. him in this i love him in it it's the woman who plays really jackie gorgeous. and this is, is amazing sorry the actress who plays jackie um, oh yeah now since then i mean she my heart. Oh. props up occasionally in uh british telly and does some theater and i think she was in the soap for a while mm-hmm. but she's incredible in it the wedding. Incredible. Oh. oh man <laughs> and so it is it is again it's a shame that it's only remembered in that merchant ivory mist where Room with a View, this and Remain to the Day all kind of blur into one mm-hmm. film for most people where, yeah, there's lots of actors doing posh, 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 terribly, terribly. And that's all it is. When, like, you know, Room with a View, which for some reason I watched last year or earlier this year, Denham Elliott, who I think was nominated for an Oscar, mm-hmm. one of my favourite actors, it's his best performance. Maggie Smith is incredible in it. Again, Helen Bonham Carter's in it. They, James Ivory gets such brilliant, nuanced, but full of character performance from people. It's, they take Forster's characters, which obviously are brilliant, and turns them Dickensian in size, and then shrinks that to a movie performance. And it's just masterful from all of them. Well, and everyone's clearly having a fucking lovely time. <laughs> it there is a intimacy to the way that that he directs these performances as well that makes it part of the you know Emily and I were talking before we were on mic about Unforgiven because Unforgiven obviously wins Best Picture and I was saying how I'm not a Western person because it's a hurdle for me for whatever reason to like really lock into this stuff and I feel like I have a similar hurdle with period pieces. And then I watch this movie and I'm just like, he blows all of that shit away and just really just surgically gets down to like the characters. So it all just Mm -hmm. feels so intimate and powerful. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just, yeah, really, really knocked my socks off. 
I think one of the what a really good thing that's happened for Merchant Ivory because I feel like they've been getting a little bit of a rediscovery in recent years. Like, is the fact that Morris exists. I think it's not as good as their best films, but it's a very good film. And I think the fact that it's this groundbreaking movie has made a lot of people go back and. Honestly, there's nothing more gay than restrained longing, and like Merchant Ivory is full of restrained longing. So, yeah, I'd say the British are pretty full of restrained longing. Well, listen, <laughs> the irony that that no one involved in the creation of it is British. Mm-hmm. James Ivory, American; Ishmael Merchant, Indian. Uh, what's the writer's name? I've forgotten her name. Uh, Ruth. I'm talking uh, to two writers, and of course, it's the writer. You know, it's uh, Ruth uh, Pryor. Forgive me. Yes, you, yes, uh, exactly. Hobla, I believe, is how you say. And it? yet, they create the yeah. most quintessentially British. Maybe it needs eyes for outside eyes looking in, in order to be able you to. Know, you say I didn't know James Ivory was American. <laughs> Forgive me, I uh, thought he was British. Neither did I until this afternoon when I did a, a quick. <laughs> they were they were based in the uk for so long but actually merchant ivory started as a company in india which is the thing i did not know um it does it does look like ruth prower uh vara uh lived in london most of her life um she was born in germany and then fled the nazis uh and and ended up in london so like it seems like she probably you know like she was an immigrant who like obviously got to know her her new home nation quite well. So I wonder if that's where some of this understanding comes from, from the screenwriter, because writers are important. We are. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to give a little bit of context for our listeners. Uh, Howard's End is often considered E.M. Forrester's masterpiece. Uh, it's a story of two independent and unconventional sisters and the men in their lives seeking love and meaning as they navigate an ever-changing world. Margaret Schlegel is an intelligent, idealistic young woman who is courted by the older Henry Wilcox, a self-made conservative businessman, after his wife Ruth Wilcox dies unexpectedly and he becomes the owner of her mansion Howard's End. Meanwhile, Margaret's passionate and capricious young sister, Helen Schnegel, takes up with the cause of Leonard Bast, a young bank clerk who falls on hard times at work and at home with his partner, Jackie. In the absence of their late parents, the sister's loving but interfering Aunt Julie tries to keep the young ladies and their brother, Tibby, on the straight and narrow. Howard's End opened on March 13th, 1992 against... Wayne's World, My Cousin Vinny, The Lawnmower Man, and The Mighty Ducks. So, I mean, it oh, really yeah. is just... The Lawnmower Man, I can't oh, wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, it would go on to make $32 million on an $8 million budget. The fact that this movie is an $8 million budget is crazy to me. This movie looks unreal for $8 million. The locations that they shot, now, it would be... You wouldn't be able... To, it doesn't matter your budget. Unless you're Christopher Nolan, you wouldn't be able to shoot where they were shooting. It's it's a really, I mean, it, it's interesting to me. It's still a relatively compact movie, right? Like you still have some beautiful locations that you mentioned, Tom, where they get to go wide, right? But when it comes to sort of your street scenes as well, you've got all these old cars, you've got all these old costumes. I really don't know how they made it on the budget that they made it on. It's it's pretty unbelievable. Every <laughs> shot is so full. Every yeah. shot looks yeah. expensive. Yeah. I'm not surprised that they won for art direction. Absolutely. I mean... Perfect. Totally. That was like when I looked back at some of the bad reviews of the film, they mostly focused on how sumptuous it was. They were mostly like, this is like, yeah, it It was very much like, no, it was very much like they focus on the surface versus Mm -hmm. 
you know, they don't do as much like character work, which I don't think is true, but like, I can get where if you've seen this movie one time and you're walking out and you have to file a review, I can get where like it's nuances might be lost on you. Dave care of the Chicago tribune. (laughs) Speaking of reviews, I want to read just a little bit of Ebert's four star review where he said, uh, there are converse, there are two conversations in Howard's end between Henry Wilcox, a a wealthy businessman and Margaret Schlegel, who becomes a second wife. The first is amusing. The second desperate. And they express the film's buried subject, which is the impossibility of two people with fundamentally different values ever being able to really communicate around these conversations revolves a story involving those dependent, sorry, dependable standbys of circa 1900 British literature, class, wealth, family, hypocrisy, and real estate. Uh, He also says, will you forgive her as you yourself have been forgiven? Margaret asks, Henry, you had a mistress. My sister had a lover. In 1910, her speech, however fair and sensible it may sound to us now, was shocking. It's hard now to imagine how dangerous the novel seemed to some of its readers. The hypocrisy that Forrester was illustrating had a buried meaning to him because of his own homosexuality, which he kept a secret, at least in public, until the posthumous publication of his novel Maurice, which was also filmed by Merchant Ivory. Uh, Howard's End, based on the 1910 novel by Forrester, is a film seething with anger, passion, greed, and emotional violence that the characters are generally well-behaved, says less about their manners than their inhibitions. I mean, it, it, it is one of those movies, and, and Tom, I obviously would love to hear you speak on this, in terms of um, repression of emotion and sort of these uh, hallmarks of British culture, it seems, to some degree, of mm-hmm. not communicating particularly well. Um, and it, it is interesting how this movie is has characters like Margaret, who is quite, you know, Margaret and Helen are both very kind of open about their feelings, but there seems to be such um, complications and repercussions for them being so open with their feelings. Would you agree? Well, I, th- I think, yes, even now, the... So there's the sisters and the brother who's a very sensitive soul and they're always worried about his illness. Is coded? Tibby's coded. Okay, I wasn't sure, but he seems a little coded, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> yes. Now tell me, would that then... The... Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, Tom? <laughs> so their fear of illness is actually... Has he been busted? I mean, that's interesting. I think uh, Forster was writing about, because he was gay himself, was writing about so much of this stuff in like layered ways that even he wasn't always aware of. Um, So like, I I wouldn't be surprised if that's what he's talking about, but it also could just be like a sickly boy was like a way to introduce a character that could feel a little bit less masculine in a way that might be as queer coded to people. But if you knew what to look for, you knew that, yeah. yeah, right. Right. I mean, even um, just the way he's treated at school feels coded too, right? You know what I mean? Like the, the way he's. I'm. I'm. I yeah. want to make Tibby origins. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Would watch. Yeah. 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 But yeah, like the way that that he's yelled at and sort of like almost physically attacked at school like it does it does feel as though there's a lot of that going on but but sorry tom i didn't mean to interrupt you in terms of what we were talking about in terms of repression and what have you but it's i mean it still is very apparent when you have uh how to put it uh clever people (laughs) trying to progress and people who like the old industrial ways not wanting you to and especially post-Brexit, 
and after however many years of the Tories. Mm -hmm. And uh, in both our countries, the bastardization of the term woke and where it was once a badge of honor and is now a stick to beat people with. And I think over here, there is still the, um, the Wilcoxes are still winning the arguments against the arty farty. You can see it still, it's only been in the last 10 years that they've really tried to decimate the arts in schools. And only in the last year, our, our asshole prime minister is trying to get rid of all of that and university. And it's just about people doing trade, but not any people, working class people doing trade and then leave the running of the country to the rest of us. He's the richest prime minister that we've ever had. He's wealthier than the king. And he's making decisions at a time when we call it the cost of living crisis. We've never had anything like it in my lifetime where the class divide is so huge and it's something that I'm constantly aware of. And so watching this now for the first time in, you know, 20 years, it really, really strikes a chord. And you saying that Merchant Ivory films, you know, are starting to be appreciated. I think that's exactly why, because even 100, 110 years after it was written, we've got exactly the same shit uh, in, you know, the old adage of uh, everything in Britain comes down to class. Well, it's exactly true. And for a while, um, who was it who said that we don't, the class is no longer defined by uh, wealth over here anymore, but by culture. Yeah. And, but, but now I think it's bringing culture and wealth together as a class divide. Now that we have more people using food banks than we ever had before. And we've got the richest prime minister and the richest government that we've ever had. It's, it's exactly like Victorian and Edwardian England. They're going to try and get rid of the NHS as soon as they can to fuck people up so that we can have an American style uh, insurance. This is what people are listening for. Right? Our, insur listening. our insurance is great. Everyone loves yeah, insurance in America. I, you know, it's interesting as you were as you were talking, Tom. I was thinking about the fact that um, I just happened to watch The Handmaiden before I watched Howard's End, just because I, I Park Chan Wook. Yes, mm -hmm. the Park Chan Wook film, oh, yeah, which because right. Blank Check is doing uh, his films, and I'd never seen Handmaiden, uh, which masterpiece, definitely my probably my favorite uh, Park movie. Great, it's it's an amazing movie. Uh, the novel, which is a British novel, that's that what it's I was based say. on, is like yeah. you get, yeah, you got to read that too. That's a fantastic novel. But, yeah. but it, it's it's so fascinating to me the way that sort of uh, Park Chan Wook took this book, which was also about class and the haves and have nots, obviously adapted it to the the Japanese Korean historical, you know, uh, situation, and it just goes to show that like. The, these class distinctions seem to never go away, right? Like we're in 2023. You're Tom talking about how they're continually trying, the rich continue to try to fuck over the poor. Uh, it's all about power and all these sort of things. And and it's just fascinating to me that we're seeing it in, in, in every culture. Well, but then also that... think back to, 
sorry, go ahead. There's that scene where like Henry Wilcox is like, there's the poor, you can't really do anything for them. And I was just like, you could imagine someone like doing like a, like a tweet thread and then everyone like quote tweeting them to be like, look at this fucking guy. But like, he would still have billions and billions of dollars. It's this thing of like so much of class class culture in America right now is uh, you know, uh, extremely rich people wanting to not have to see poor people. So they're just like, can't we put these homeless people somewhere else? And you're like, no, like you should have sure. to look at this thing that you created. Well, you, you bring up a question that I want to ask both of you guys, because I don't really have an answer, but I'm curious as to what you think about this, because if it feeds into what we're talking about, which is does Henry consciously fuck over Leonard or is he so oblivious to Leonard's plight that he doesn't even really think about what he's doing. You mean initially with when he Correct. says that the Correct. company's going to go down by Christmas? I think he's oblivious. I think I think he just has I think the rich I think one of the themes of this novel, this movie, this story is you can never entirely understand people who are the next class rung down from you. The Schlegels don't really understand the Basts. They sympathize for them. They don't really understand their situation. The Wilcoxes don't understand the Schlegels and they really don't understand the Basts. So it's like, it's this situation where you can like have empathy and you can have sympathy, but often, you know, when there's a class system, which is set into place and is so rigid, there's just fundamentally no understanding. And like the only way to gain understanding would be to dismantle it, which is the thing we've been trying to do in human history for like six millennia. So unsuccessful. Someday we're going to get there. <laughs> Have faith in us. Star Trek's coming. Tom, do you but, think he did it consciously? That, well, I think if it's unconscious, then his the final line is so devastating where he says to Margaret about not telling her that the house was left to her. And I, I didn't think, I, I didn't do anything wrong, did I? Mm -hmm. And that's just, just chilling. Yep. If he genuinely doesn't think any of the events of the film are because he did anything wrong. I mean, both versions are chilling, to be fair. The one where he knows and the one where he doesn't know. They're both like both versions of it are bad. It's it, it is interesting. Yes, I think, I think it says more about it being a state of the nation if he's oblivious sure, to it. Sure, sure, sure. And yes. thinking about um when the book was written, that's definitely the case. When you've come through the Industrial Revolution and you've plowed over most of the British countryside and you and the cities are smog filled. Uh, poverty pits yes, yes, yes. Uh, with a little pocket in the middle where people live in absolute bliss and luxury uh, you've got um, when the film was made which is at the end of the Thatcher era where she completely decimated the, uh, the north and the working class willingly and may she forever rot in hell for it and this film was made at the end of the Thatcher era when the country then just voted in another conservative government. John Major, not quite as bad, but even so, it's just, this is what we do. The line from Withnell and I, um, uh, we're living in a world of weather forecast and breakfast, uh, shat on by Tories, shoveled up by Labour. And that's what it is in a cycle, that you will continually allow yourself to be shat on by Tories, then you'll give a brief bit for someone else to shovel you up and then it's back to the Tories. I mean, it's not business. it's not drastically dissimilar here. 
I mean, I do think that the Republicans dig a big hole, the Democrats dig us out of it, the Republicans dig a big hole, the Democrats dig us out of it. It's just a vicious cycle. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I do think there's something really interesting about the fact that if everyone just listened to Ruth, we'd all be okay. <laughs> yeah. Just listen to Ruth. I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 and it, it cycles by to what you were saying, Tom, about the last line where you're just like, like there was an inevitability to what you're talking about the cycle of events the way that this vicious circle of this universe exists you know margaret was always going to get howard's end yeah yeah and i love that it's um if he didn't if henry didn't interfere and try and stop her from getting it she never would have got it it's just his actions in trying desperately for her not to that leads to it, which equally, um, uh, oh fuck, what's her name? Helen Bottom Carter's, what's her name? Oh, Helen. Helen. Uh, Helen, equally, Helen, if she just left the fucking bass alone, he wouldn't have, you know, he but wouldn't that's have been. Not, you, what you're saying is turn a blind eye to the to these people, you'd be better off. But no. I'm not, not saying you're condoning that, but she wouldn't Think. be better off had she done it yet. If she hadn't fucked him. <laughs> don't don't fuck him in the rowboat. Yeah, you know, a, a, a couple of months ago there was um, Prince William. Mm. Um, God, I love the royal family. <laughs> uh, Prince William uh, was yes. going to make a big announcement for his solution to homelessness. Oh, in, uh, he London. solved it. Uh, he solved it single handedly. Good Yay! for him. Good for him. Um, and and people would think thinking, oh my God, is something because he has said, I want to modernise the royal family. Is some land going to be donated for hostels? Is one of his many palaces going to be donated? Uh, what what could he possibly be doing? And he said, yeah. I'm going to give three million pounds from my huge bank to something or other, and then not very. Uh, descriptive now three million pounds would maybe help a few people for a few years it's not solving the problem he has a million ways of solving the problem but he won't and that's exactly what um uh helen is doing a fun thing is that so many ways at her disposal to help lots of people sure and she doesn't yeah she wants to be seen or she just wants to shag him in a boat. <laughs> yes, Emily. Maybe that's what it is. Uh, I was mostly going to say that there's a number of people on the American right now who are like, we should bring back the monarchy. That sounds good. <laughs> oh, because, legitimately want like, a king and queen. Yeah, sure. they want a king because like, they see the way that things are shifting in terms of you know, race, gender, class, all of this stuff that people are much more aware of and they want to shove that genie back in the bottle and they're like, mm-hmm. the best way to do that is to have a king. But it's not like any of the countries with kings aren't aware of this shit. It's like, yeah. obviously. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, they're really I, determined to not like the founding fathers, aren't they? Yeah. They're really determined well, to go weird. against everything. They have they a vision of them. The founding they, fathers. they have a vision of them yeah. that is... To connect it to all the founding fathers' worst traits and none yep. of their good traits, it's yep. it's a very mm-hmm. very weird time to be oh, alive. It's, it's, 
there the the rights interpretation of the constitution continues to befuddle me there it is i've never seen anyone misinterpret and cherry pick a document like they do it's the bible they're just treating it like the bible because that's what they know how to do um also i think i just realized that there's like britain actually has a king now that feels wrong and to me that just feels yeah. incorrect it yeah. does feel wrong and yeah. i'll tell you why everyone seemed a bit weirded out by the coronation was that for as long as anyone living can remember uh the queen was the queen and prince charles was just some weird bloke with big ears in the background uh talking to his plant and being recorded telling camilla parker bowles that he'd like to be resurrected as her tampon he was just some strange man in the background and then to see him suddenly done up in all the gear uh, of the the ball and the scepter and the crown you saw that it was just fancy dress the whole thing is really expensive fancy dress and they shoved out literally shoved out all of the homeless people from the streets beforehand so it wouldn't look ugly they uh protesters who were saying not making you know the um lowercase r republicans were literally they were all rounded up and arrested as soon as they stepped out of their van at seven o'clock in the morning um people who were handing out rape alarms to women because there was such a huge crowd were arrested because they said no no this is going to cause a disruption if someone uses a rape alarm it would cause a disruption we don't want the whole world seeing that just so that the weird tampon man can put on a, a 500 million pound hat <laughs> Now, my you know, son, the moment, that, said, the moment that broke my brain a little bit where I was kind of like, what exactly are we doing here was when the king showed up on American Idol. <laughs> there was a what? moment this past season of American Idol where uh, Katy Perry was at the coronation. So they did like video of like Katy Perry just hanging out with the like, an interstitial thing where she's like hanging out with the king. And I was just like, I don't I don't know. Oh, what it's the not that he's done. No, 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 no. He should have said I wish. That would have been amazing. But <laughs> I, I, it was just this moment where I was like, I don't even know what the king even represents anymore. If you're the fucking king of the United Kingdom, I love Katy Perry, but hold out for a better pop star. I think you could get the next <laughs> tier up. I think I you could disagree. get an Olivia Rodrigo. I don't think you could get a Taylor or Beyonce, but you could yeah. get an Olivia yeah, Rodrigo. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, when, so when I, we I, wanna... it, I, didn't, I didn't want to uh, impose my republican views my anti-monarchist views sure, sure, on no. my son. sure I but that. i thought it was important that as an event mm-hmm. he should you see it we yeah. should watch it yeah um just curiosity life's rich what did he tapestry. think of it so boring <laughs> so boring and yeah, then he said he so, look, yeah. so like look what what's the point what's the point of him i said well exactly Exactly. He says, why is he in a gold carriage? Well, exactly. And then he came up with the best idea. He said, you know what should have done? They should put a lion in a cage outside Buckingham Palace. Now, he has to come out of Buckingham Palace, get in the cage, wrestle the lion... And tame it enough so that he can ride it to Westminster Abbey, and then he's the king. Can I just say that never have I been 
Never have I been more convinced that your son is your son than that story. <laughs> uh, when you launched, when you launched into that, like not to impose your anti-monarchist views, I thought you were talking about on this podcast. And listen, I am a born and raised American. One of the few good things we did was like fuck that guy to like when <laughs> when we were like get rid of that king. Yeah. Phil's Canadian, so he's monarchy curious, and we all know it. But <laughs> monarchy <laughs> curious is the perfect way of describing Canada. T-shirt. <laughs> It's true. Yeah, we are not happy that Charles will be on our money uh, very soon, unfortunately. But um, so I do have a question. Another question about the 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 slight deviation. I think I I think I think I can tie this back to Howard's end. Phil, watch me do it. Watch me do it. I think there's this thing. So Elizabeth was queen my whole life. I was born into that. So I didn't I'm obviously I'm from the US. I didn't have to question. I didn't really question. I was like, yeah, she's just the queen. I feel like the things that you are born into, you struggle to question. And I think that like it is a difficult and and um it's a lifelong process. It's a process that a lot of people find terrifying because they're like mm-hmm. used to a way certain things are. Sure. And I feel like the more comfortable you are, the harder it becomes to question things. And like, I do feel like that really like ties into, you know, Howard's end, like, like Henry cannot look at the things he's done, but increasingly Margaret and Helen can't either. They start as like, we're going to do really nice things. There's a letterbox review of this that I, I, I kind of love that is just, uh, am I the asshole? I hate my father's socialist wife, (laughs) Um, but that's great. But yeah, like the the richer that Margaret becomes, the less she can look at this thing. And I think that's just, mm. I think that's just true. Uh, I and that. I think it's a thing that Forrester like t- taps into is this like when the class system is as rigid as this and you're born into it, the act of questioning, questioning it is is like you can do it. But like the act of doing anything about it becomes like almost impossible and like you have to put a lot more skin in the game than any of these characters are willing to and then of course you know the working class man dies like that's well, it's, that's it's interesting because as i was watching it i was i was thinking about margaret's descent of sorts right she starts at a certain place and then once she gets married to henry it's sort of like one step after another of her having to become more and more sort of subservient to some degree and and sublimating her feelings to some degree I, I think about the scene where um she essentially begs henry to help leonard get a job and the way it's shot she's literally on her knees yeah. on the ground like holding his hand like he's a king and she's you know uh one of his minions and and then i think about the scene where at the end where she essentially is ready to break it off and hopkins who fucking when she's this. on the chair and he's behind her holding on to her right yeah and just and the scene where, where they, they sit down in the grass and he does this thing twice in the movie where he covers his face so that she Love can't it. see him and Love it's just it. it's incredible shit he, it, it's hopkins in this movie is is still so anthony hopkins and yet at the same and by that i mean like sort of uh, awkward and weird and kind of aggressive and the way he speaks as though he's talking to people that are perhaps hard of hearing around him like everything is just very sort of uh, crisp and, and strange and and yet at the same time you feel for this guy but he's also a fucking monster it's it's all really complex yeah. and fascinating stuff You, when you watch it back the bit that really hit me about mm-hmm. Hopkins' 
performance. I've always loved the way he looks at people. Mm. I think he, what's so remark about, uh, remarkable about him is he has a million thoughts going on in his head at any one time. And much like Doctor Strange seeing the, the infinite timelines and picks exactly the right one, He's got all of these, all of these thoughts, and then he picks one, and he, he drills it into the other person. My thought about you, and my thought about this, and he does that for every line and every single thought, and it's it's masterful and seems effortless. When he first, when they go to visit the sisters, and they bring puppies, and it's when he first sees Leonard Bass mm-hmm. when they first meet. And he comes in, it's all puppies, la, 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 la. Watch Hopkins in the background flock that there's a working class man in the room. And the way he stops and stares him down is absolutely fucking terrifying. And to me, it's more frightening than anything Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) Hannibal Lecter. You know, it's it's, so brilliant. It's so brilliant. And he's... He's on a similar level to Hannibal Lecter in that what I love about Hopkins is how much fun and joy he brings to every character, no matter who it is. The fact that that Tony Hopkins is feeling so much joy playing these characters. I think and, also- uh, Hannibal Lecter is one of the most playful parts. And he's a, you know, Hannibal Lecter. And in this... It's exactly the same level of I'm going to find how much fun can I have playing a complete asshole. He's there. There are two moments. There's many moments, but this moment that's so cringe for me is the scene when they're dancing in his office. Do you remember this scene? It's him and Emma Thompson, yeah. and and it's and clear that clocks it through the window, through right. the door, yeah. and it's clear that she's brought out this kind of youthful energy in him, and that he, but it's so awkward and weird and he doesn't really know how to use his body in that way. And it just, I found it I so it was fake. awkward. I thought it was fake. Oh. I thought it was him putting something on for her. That seems possible. That seems My possible. wife said they're so cute together. So that, that tells you how we feel <laughs> about marriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I do think that Hopkins, I, and I, this is a question I have for you guys, because I'm, I'm curious as to what you think he sees Howard's end as and by that I mean the actual house itself because to me because there's that very sort of cutting scene uh you know probably two-thirds of the way through the film where Margaret is begging him to let Helen stay at Howard's end for one night and he simply refuses to let her stay there and I feel like Howard's end to him is like his dead wife it's like his infidelity. He sees this place as a sort of some sort of a metaphor for all these things, whether he's conscious of it or not. And this idea that this woman, this pregnant woman out of wedlock would be spending one night at Howard's end feels like an affront to his dead wife in some way. I think Am he I just thinks it'd be, I think it just, he thinks it'd be a huge scandal. I think he doesn't oh, okay. really care about Howard's end. Okay. I think, I think he cares about, about propriety I think okay. he like is like I enjoy having this asset in my portfolio, but like you know, that's exactly he, what I think. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> interesting. Okay, I think I, it's so, an, so it's another. He, he's he's got this huge emotional component to it. Is what you're saying? Well, 
there's a question. I, I agree with Emily that I think it's just one of his large property okay. portfolio. And to let uh, a, a woman pregnant out of wedlock stay in there mm-hmm. is like saying, she, uh, someone just shat themselves, can they have your trousers? No. Uh, it, it may be like that. But the, the, the question as to whether there's any emotional attachment is whether when when she finally shows him the pig's teeth in the tree. So good. And he says, oh, yeah, oh, look at that. <laughs> is that real or not? Does he know that? Or is this the first time? That would answer the question before. about then it's just another of his property portfolio. It's, if, if these things, if Ruth represents pre-industrial England, yeah. it's, you know, that's why there's talk of uh, the mythology of England, which isn't all fairies and, and witches. There's a lot more to it. Mm. And this is, and she talks about the meadow and the pony in the meadow that's fucked now, it's glue. And the teeth in the tree, and it's something clearly really, 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 really special to her, and he has no idea. Yeah, I mean, the the teeth are amazing, and I think it speaks to what you're talking about, Tom, that Ruth saw in Margaret the affinity for those things, right? This idea that, like, she will appreciate this house, she will appreciate this land, she will appreciate... It's what the Romantics, you know, the Bloomsbury set and the Romantics wanted to hark back to that era which and forster was a member of sure that um i'm sorry you mentioned something earlier tom that i wanted to uh just underline for a second which is the the puppy scene is one of a couple scenes in this film where you have kind of this cacophony of voices where you have like everybody talking over each other and it's really messy in a great way feels kind of robert altman-esque of that sort of like when everyone's talking over each other and it made me think of it's one of the things i love about greta gerwig's little women as well is sort of the it, it it feels like a somewhat like there's an element of modernity to it it feels a little bit kind of filmically and from an audio perspective kind of messy and modern which i love um mm. and there's a couple things that ivory does in this film the other one is something that i found odd but interesting which was the fades to black in the middle of scenes i love that punct- i thought it was really interesting to punctuate certain lines of dialogue and to kind of jump deeper into scenes i thought it was really interesting i guess my question is more like why did he do it on the scenes that he did it on i think forster i think a thing that forster does and this is sort of tying back into the discussion yeah. about ruth and henry I think that for the most part, human beings don't know why they do things. I think that we sometimes just do a thing and we're like, why did I do that? And you're like, you know what? I'm not going to look at that too hard. And like a part of like being queer um, often is you suddenly have to start looking at all these things you do and trying to figure out where they come from. So I think Forrester is like astonishingly good at examining the ways that people do things on an emotional level and then make them make them seem rational to themselves so they don't notice the emotional layer of what's happening. So I think if Henry's doing a thing for Ruth, it, it may be because of that. But I think that those uh, conversations where things get elided, where you cut through the black fades and come back in, uh, which I think is a brilliant choice, is just sort of like 
an attempt to replicate that sensation of we're just mm. going to hit the moments when the deal is made and the emotion that's below it is assumed and not depicted. And I think that only works if you have an amazing cast, like that's, a, that's dangerous if you don't have that, but they do. So it, it absolutely becomes this, like all of the emotion in this movie is, you know, restrained, which is not a wild thing to say about a merchant ivory film, but like, it it is the depiction of how that emotion is restrained is just fundamentally so smart about the way that people especially people who exist within the majority uh ruling class uh understand themselves or more accurately don't yeah i mean i i think that the as you were talking about the 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 fades to black which i agree with you i think it's really fascinating and very it's an effective tool it also makes me think about how bad these people are communicating mm -hmm. that of course their literal communications are broken into these weird kind of fragments and don't feel as of a piece, if you will, especially the second time he does the fade to black situation is in the scene where Margaret has found out about uh, Henry's infidelity with uh, mm -hmm. Jackie and his whole thing is like, you can't possibly forgive me. I'm a piece of shit. And she's like, we can move past this. Like it's, it's not that big a deal. And that conversation is they're coming from two drastically different perspectives. And it feels like the fades to black actually show just how broken that conversation is. If that makes sense. Sure. One thing I love about this story and all stories like it is that it is this depiction of an entire culture that also seems like only three families exist in all of Britain. In life. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, you were talking about the performances, Emily, and it's worth noting that Emma Thompson received 13 nominations for this role and won every single one of them. Oh, um, yeah, wow. So <laughs> she just, uh, wow. I guess there was no surprise when she did win the Oscar. The other thing that's worth noting is uh, shortly after this film, Helena Bonham Carter goes off to uh, be in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with Kenneth Branagh and is perhaps the reason that the marriage of Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh's fell apart. Uh, certainly seems like that was the case because he did start dating uh, Helena Bonham Carter shortly thereafter. Um, Kenneth Branagh, what a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're getting no comment from us. Awesome. You, I mean, you can dig this grave, this smutty grave of yours. When he when he turned up in Oppenheimer, I just was like, "There he is! Look there at him!" Again. It's, I mean, it's <laughs> it is. I, I not to turn this into a whole thing on Kenneth Branagh, but I do just want to say for a quick second because Tom, I, I I need to hear your thoughts on this. But like, I do think that Kenneth Branagh's career is kind of fascinating, insofar oh, yeah. as that like he he's he's sort of the bell of the ball in the like early nineties in the sense that like, you know, Henry five and all the various award nominations and everyone thinks he's, you know, the Shakespeare guy and he's married to Emma Thompson. Everything's great. And then he has a real fallow period for a long swath of his career and then kind of reemerges. And now is sort of this, the movies he chooses to direct are, are kind of baffling to me. Uh, he, yeah. he directed a, a reboot of Jack Ryan that no one talks about. He's done like a Cinderella movie that kind of no one talks about. Like, it's, I find it fascinating. Isn't it, isn't it because and like... Thor and... Yeah. What was the Sorry. other? Isn't it, isn't it, I mean, Thor he's doing these Poirot like, movies now. Poirot ones with that obscene moustache. Speaking of the moustache, 
I just need to say this very quickly, Emily, and then and then you can finish your thought. I watched uh, the beginning of Death on the Nile last night because I was there's, like, yeah. mm-hmm. and there's a backstory for the mustache talk. Hell yeah, mustache Uh-oh. origins. They, but there's a mustache origins. The movie opens with him in I think it's World War One, and he basically gets uh, he kind of gets blown up, and it like fucks up his face. And his wife is like, don't worry, you'll just grow a mustache. So the mustache is to cover oh, yeah. up all so of the good. Like, damage to his face. Ah, uh, uh, how wonderful. What a wonderful storytelling gambit. I do think that Branagh's career has gotten so weird because Thor was the movie that like brought him back. And now he's just like, well, I can just do whatever I want. But like, what was the other one? The other massive one with Judy? De- uh, no. What was it? Wait, no, it was meant to be the start of a franchise. Artemis Fowl. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. No one talks that about that him, movie. Uh, that but movie yeah, was he a won, disaster. He won an Oscar, which is very strange. I didn't really love Belfast, but I, I think what so I kind of love about Kenneth Branagh is mm. at this stage in his career, yeah. his every acting role is like he's in a zoo. And he knows there's people watching him. And he knows that if he does a good enough job entertaining them, he'll get little pellets of food dropped from the top of the screen. And I love that. It sounds like I'm insulting him. But he's just <laughs> making choices where I'm like, thank you. Like him and Tenet, obviously one of the greatest oh films God. ever made, is just like <laughs> a- astonishingly strange. And I... You know, I love when the when an actor makes choices that make no sense, but also like clearly make sense to them. And I'm like, oh, you're trying to please me, buddy. I love that. I do think that Brana has become uh, Nolan's new Michael Caine because Michael Caine is basically well. Well, retired. this what was extraordinary about Oppenheimer mm-hmm. was whenever he came on screen, it was directed and performed as though they had dug up. Laurence Olivier and reanimated him and they have here he is the king or it's it's a it's Marlon Brando's head with Laurence Olivier's body and just piece together the very best actors you could ever dream of Branner yeah and there he is and it was directed and performed like that and I found it absolutely extraordinary what one thing I'll I'll tell a story which is not brief about Branagh. Uh, A guy that I worked with a long time ago uh, had a single line in Branagh's Hamlet, the film of Hamlet. The four-hour-plus version. Yes. Yeah. So there's this huge scene, and Branagh, it's going to be a a, a one-er. And it's going to follow Hamlet through, it's going to go through this big Russian arc-style dance, 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 huge, hundreds of extras, dancey, dancey, dancey. Then you catch Hamlet, he starts a soliloquy, there's some other stuff going on, he walks through room after room, the soliloquy goes on a little bit here, room after room, bit of a scene here, then into another bit, and it goes on and on and on. And it took them weeks to rehearse it, and at the end of the scene, this guy I worked with just comes on and says, "Um, a message for you. Uh, my liege or something like that so after weeks of rehearsal after days of setting up they do their first take through the soliloquy style they they do all the dancing they catch hamlet the soliloquy starts a little bit over here through all the rooms through 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 it finally gets to this guy's entrance and he walks up and trips and goes oh fuck 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And freezes. And Branna very slowly turns to him and absolutely pisses himself. He finds it the funniest thing that has ever happened. And for that, Branna's all right. Branna's amazing. That's actually great. Yeah. Isn't that great? That's I that's fantastic. Although I will also just say too, like maybe a rookie move to have a guy who has one line be the button at the end of a fucking giant oneer. You might not want to hinge the entire thing on that, but that's either here nor yeah, there. I, I just very quickly just want to say, because you you mentioned Artemis Fowl, I mentioned Jack Ryan. I just the reason I bring this stuff up is that this guy keeps getting handed these big franchises because of Thor Emily, as you mentioned, and kind of shits the bed and then just I would, keeps getting new chances. I would guess that he delivers things on time and on budget, which is like, and he's like very experienced. He knows what he's doing. There's this thing like uh, before the Flash was coming out, they announced that Andy Muschietti was going to direct this Batman movie, and everyone was like, "Why is he getting this Batman movie?" And someone was like, "He brings things in on time yeah. and on budget, and like that is increasingly a rarity in these I agree franchises." So I'm I sure agree. that like Branna just is is Branna's very good at what he does, and by that I mean he like really knows what he's doing. So sure, sure. and uh, I remembered in one of the Hollywood Reporter roundtables before one of the Oscars, uh, Ridley was on it. And they ask him how you have such a long career with so many movies. And it's, he says, I just put stuff on budget and on, yeah. on time. And I imagine Brad, it looks by the looks of things, because you look at Branagh's early films and some of his recent films, like Much Ado is, a, is really brilliant from what I remember of it. It's an amazing film, yeah. Presumably he has these huge things and you're not really directing most of it. Most of it is in the hands of the people on the computers directing all of the CGI stuff. Maybe he's just happy to direct it as best he can, get the performance as as good as he can have, everyone has a lovely time, and then just hand it over to, you know, everything that they want you to do, that the studios want you to do. Just hand it in and let us do with it. I feel like he's kind of biding time until he can credibly play King Lear. And then just like, oh, just he is playing King Lear next year on stage. Oh, really? Oh, well, go. he's yeah. got to make a movie. Is... He's got to make a movie of that. There's <laughs> not really a good Lear movie. Going to New York, and then yeah, he'll film it. Um, I, I think that's really. I think I agree with that. I think that's really interesting that he he's probably, as you said, a solid gun for hire. Um, I'm sure that Thor was a, a perfect example of that. I think he's good with actors. That's my assumption anyway. Like, I think actors probably like to work with him. 
Um, yeah. My favorite film of his is still Probably Dead Again, which I think is an underrated, great, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, uh, with Emma Thompson. It's like mm-hmm. a past lives uh, murder mystery. And like, it's just fun. Andy Garcia and Derek Jacoby. And like, it's just, it's just great. I think yeah. I like uh, In the Bleak Midwinter. I think that's my I favorite. Think that. It's a fucking Christmas movie, so of course I like it. Uh, it. But I, if it's not that, it's Much Ado. I think Much Ado is fantastic. Um, I He's just not a want bad to. Filmmaker, but... I want to be clear when I said there hasn't been a good King Lear film. I'm aware Akura Akura Sounds Ron exists and is amazing. I mean, a film of the Shakespeare sure. play. Please continue. Don't don't uh, tweet at me. Um, uh, Paul, Paul Schofield in Peter Brook's version. Mm. Paul Schofield, who is probably the best actor of the last hundred years. Uh, yeah, there's a really, really bleak black and white uh, Peach Brook. I, I am, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I am not well uh, versed in Paul Schofield's career, but I will say he's so good in Quiz Show. That's one of those movies that I feel like uh, a great 90s movie that that kind of is a little bit forgotten to some degree. But Paul Schofield crushes that movie. He is so good in that movie. Um, Lionel Winkler, where he plays Thomas More, is just with a very young John Hurt and Robert Shaw going huge as uh, Henry sure. VIII. But w- watch Paul Schofield. He's he's the man. I think I imagine even Anthony Hopkins will say Paul Schofield. <laughs> Um, so I want to just talk about a couple things um, in Howard's End that I liked. <laughs> what, like, Is this a podcast about Howard's End? I'm trying. To, I'm doing the best I can here, guys. Um, I, I really love the the first the, the whole sequence at the beginning, the credit sequence at Magic Hour with Helena Bonham Carter walking around Howard's End, and this just beautiful golden light inside the house that looks so warm with this like Magic Hour coldness. It's just amazing. Um, there's a line that Paul has. Paul Wincox. They kiss. Her and Helen, uh, him and Helena Bonham ha- sort of have a, a, a moment together. And then she quickly uh, sends a letter to her sister saying that she's engaged. Because I guess that's the, the way things went back then. You, you had a smooch and then you were engaged. And then essentially the next day, Paul quickly decides against the engagement. But does say to her, I do think you're a ripping girl. <laughs> Which I think Love is it. phenomenal. I, I, I hope someday to say that myself. It's it's uh, it's incredible. Um, I, I I think that all of the like the 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 whole Helen Bast umbrella stuff is so great. He like the mistaken umbrellas, and she takes his umbrella, and then he follows her. And um, it, it's I, I don't know. I kind of love little things like that that entangle people. Just small little things. But you look like you had something to say. But, yeah, it's a, it, there's a lot of coincidences. In it and near misses and chance meetings, which I should hate because it's all too convenient, but I can't resist it. It's um, uh, uh, Dr. Zhivago, one of my favorite films for exactly that reason. And in fact, David Lean, I was thinking about the you mentioning how it looked, how that first scene looked, yeah, and I'd say how all of it looks, whether it's indoor chamber scenes or outdoor vistas it's it's a a step from david lean david lean was doing all of that and then they carry the 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 baton and move it forwards and then i think hand it on to um christopher nolan i think there's a clear line through all of them david lean once said that 
he was asked about his huge, beautiful vistas. And he said, yeah, I work really, really hard to find them. But ultimately, they're completely redundant unless you can have people in front of them doing something. And I definitely feel that in this film. Yeah, it's I, I think this movie, there's a reason why it was nominated for Best Cinematography, but I it's it's a it's a beautiful looking movie. And I felt like just the, the opening really kind of sets the stage for what they're gonna do with colors and warmth and, and nature. Mm-hmm. Um and and all of it I think is really phenomenal. Um speaking of photography again, I love the the sequence when um Leonard and Jackie are having sex on their bed and you see the flashing lights of the train outside and this like mischievous score playing in the background. Like there's something um, really interesting to the way that the baths are depicted visually. They're obviously their costumes, obviously sort of this, you know, um, uh, I think, I think Henry calls them ragtags, if I'm not mistaken at one point. Um the, the, their whole existence has this sort of um, I, I, there's a vibrancy to it. I, I don't necessarily feel as though this movie's looking down its nose at them. Is kind of what mm-hmm. I'm getting at. No, no. I think yeah. this movie, I think this movie has a, a deep empathy for an understanding of them, yeah. um, but also like I think it's kind of inherent to Forrester's text that like the they just kind of get shit on. And like that's he's depicting how society works, so it's not like he's shitting on them. But excuse me, um, but yeah, I, I think it's just inherent to an adaptation of this story. Yeah, I, mm. I think it's just a very, um, it's a loving portrayal. Like we talked, we we alluded to it earlier, but the the, the wedding scene with Jackie is it breaks your heart because of how shitty these people are being towards her. Right? That she, you know, she, she's just. Um, honestly just trying to get a meal for and 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 drinks a little bit too much admittedly but still i do feel as though um it's it's trying to make you feel sad for 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 them and it's empathetic Mm. towards them i also think it's empathetic towards another scene that kind of broke my heart was the scene with ruth when she's having lunch with margaret and all of her friends and she's talking about how if all the mothers ruled the world we'd have no wars but then out of the other side of her mouth, she's talking about how happy she doesn't have the vote because she doesn't want the pressure of having to vote. <laughs> like it, there is something in Ruth, this sort of like push and pull of of seeing the potential of women. And yet at the same time, also. Um, well, you know. I, I suspect that, you know, Howard's End is like the Shire and Ruth is is a hobbit. And she just wants the really beautiful, simple, like, you could do one of your t- comparison ones, this yeah, yeah, yeah. and Features, Lord yeah. of the Ring. It's, totally. you know, as a consequence of industrialization and the loss of the English countryside and with it, mythology and culture. Sure. Um, and she's, you know, she's Tom Bombadil, just wanting to sing around in the countryside and everything else i don't want to be bothered by it yeah and she yeah. go you know she goes to the to london and she's sick mm-hmm. and it kills her mm-hmm. and and i love i love when uh she and margaret she persuades margaret guilt trips margaret into going to howard's end and get to the train ticket and the coincidence of meeting henry on the way and all he does is just grab her and turn her around there's no real conversation about 
what you want to do. It's just, nope, you're staying in London with me. And that, that, that's why she dies. You know, it's, it's interesting. You're talking about, um, I just want to live at Howard's end. I just want to kind of push everything away. I just want to live my life. It makes me think of a line. I went to see um, JFK the other night. Uh, there was a, a 35 millimeter screen that I went to see. And there's a great line that Sissy Spacek has in that movie when she's yelling with Kevin Costner. And she's like, I just want to be normal. I just want to raise our kids and be normal. And I do think that, um, not that I necessarily agree with it, but I sort of understand that headspace of women in the past of just being like, I just want to raise my kids. I want to do right by my family. And I get that, but I also think it's obviously incredibly short-sighted and, 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 you know, but it is, it is interesting. When I, Um, when I transitioned, I thought I wasn't going to have to vote anymore. And boy, was I mistaken. (laughs) 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 Uh, I do like, I do like, I love your description of, of, of Ruth as a hobbit. I think there's something really interesting in the fact that like Tolkien, Forrester, these folks are so nostalgic for a Britain of 50 years before they were born. And now we're in the space of people who are nostalgic for a Britain or an America from like 50 years before they were born that has sanded off all the parts that were probably like, this is, you know, uh, Howard's End, the book, is at the sort of the early uh, early side of the, we're going to write a book about a great house in a British country house. And all these people who are coming in and like co- class conflict and so on and so forth. And like one of my favorite novels ever written, Brideshead Revisited, like largely falls into that. But like, you know, we got movies and TV shows and like, so now we're nostalgic for that, you know, uh, the British country house between the wars, I think people uh, often refer to it as. And anyway, I'm just going to wrap up this thought by saying Peter Jackson should have cast Vanessa Redgrave as Tom Bombadil, and then we could have <laughs> left Tom in the movie. It would have been great. That that would have been amazing. I, I also think that there's something... Um, I'm thinking about the scene where they find the letter that Ruth wrote on her deathbed that says, I want to give Howard's end to Margaret. <laughs> and, the, and, and Hopkins and his two sons and his uh, daughter-in-law are all sitting around this table. Um, and his daughter, I think, as well, and uh, discussing like, how, if we're being honest, how do we get rid of this letter? <laughs> this this letter is, is is bad news for everybody. Let's is there a way for us to get rid of it? Well, it's also like they're right; it's not legally binding. You know, right. it's like right. just she just wrote this thing and was like, uh, she clearly knew her husband didn't really care about Howard's End the way that she knew Margaret would. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's uh, I love deathbed wills that like. Everyone's like, how do how do we deal with this? Because like they haven't been notarized is, is, or is, yeah. uh, is it underlined or crossed out? Exactly. I was thinking exactly. of that. Yeah. Exactly. And also just even the, the daughter-in-law being like, well, pencil never counts. I <laughs> fucking love that. You know, we were talking earlier about small performances. We love this week. I fucking yes. love Dolly. She's she great. is so funny. She's, she's so good. Yeah, she's she's a perfect like the amount of times they just cut to her looking at a scene as it's playing out and you're just like she's just got a great face she's just yeah. like you can and tell also, she's doing stuff it's like i said ivory clearly just makes actors want to have fun and explore and yep. and constructive pissing about mm-hmm. which is how you get the best performances it's I, so it's so different from the idea of merchant ivory is super stodgy because i think even at their yeah. worst and they made some bad movies they were never like stodgy they were always sure. like there was always a playfulness to it and I think some of it is they're just, they had such success. There were, them were so many uh, costume dramas and some of them were really super fucking stodgy. I was, 
right. listening to a podcast. Uh, this had Oscar buzz. They were talking about Anna and the King of Siam from 1999. It's just like, oh, oh I'm there's well aware of that movie. there's a movie that was like trying to do Merchant Ivory, but didn't understand that Merchant Ivory like understood that you have to like you have to give the audience something to latch onto, even if it's just like a character who like says ridiculous shit every so often. It's also you know not to make this about Anna and the King, but I think it's worth noting too that like that was a big 20th century Fox very expensive movie right mm-hmm. like that's the misconception that i think studios have when it comes to making movies like this which is like go bigger go grander go more expensive as though the idea is that you can buy you know uh not even opulence but that you can buy a good story and that if it's big enough and it's expensive enough but to come back to what you were saying tom about about david lean and and all that it's all about the fucking characters. It's all yeah. about the people. And you cast Jodie Foster and Chow Yun-Fat. So anyway, uh, that's that's Anna and the King. But I do, I do Don't think know that... Anna and the King. Oh. Should I watch it? Nope. Nope. I think no you thing. should. I've never seen it, but I think you should. I think it's, based on that... It's... Uh, <laughs> it, don't, don't watch it. But um, just listen to our episode on it. It's great. Um, but uh, I do love, again, there's like these weird little it's not even British phrases, but the way that lines are delivered, the way that Helena Bonham Carter tells Leonard after he asks, why are you helping me? And she says, because we like you, you noodle is just like stuff like that. (laughs) Just, I just love, she's so good in this movie. I love when they call the little kid Dudkins, is it? (laughs) Oh, Diddums. You're just like Diddums at that age. I'm like, yes. That's I've started calling my my child that my child is now Diddums. Yeah, so, Diddums yeah. sounds great. Um, can we talk for a brief second about the least romantic proposal that's ever been put on film? Uh, I thought that was so romantic. <laughs> of course, you did. not like I don't I don't think it was like rom- but I thought there was something like there is a vulnerability to Henry in that moment that isn't always present that I really like did appreciate i don't think it's like a super romantic scene but i think it's there's a sweetness to it that i think is is i liked i think in general i don't Uh, well uh, we're still uh, we're still recording but let's wait for them to come back we seem to have lost our our uh host just to be safe i appreciate you doing that emily hold on a moment i'm gonna uh uh, there we go and we're back i'm gonna pour myself another coffee i'm gonna take this use this this opportunity yeah, you know a David Lean interlude. <laughs> you, listen, David if you're a Patreon film. subscriber, you can watch Tom Meissen pour you coffee. Can watch Tom, <laughs> drink coffee. Yeah, um, <laughs> so yeah, I I don't mean to suggest Emily that it's not endearing to some extent. I, I yeah, think it's weird. <laughs> I think in general, I buy into the Henry Margaret relationship more than okay. y'all do, but I do think it's like. Yes, there is something genuine in his affection for her, but he doesn't actually want, once he has her, he doesn't want her anymore. And I think, you know, I think they make a, I think they make a good couple in some ways. She pushes him in ways he needs to be pushed, but ultimately he kind of grinds her down into like another version of Ruth, which is uh, what he evidently always wanted. And now she doesn't need the vote, you know? What's what's really fascinating about the um proposal mm. is it's an example and all of the best for me all of the best period pieces have a moment of you know you always get historical advisors telling you what what they should do what everyone should do mm-hmm. but then there's the added thing of what they 
they would have done. So the bad period pieces are just, this is the textbook, this is what they should do. They should do this, and a duke's daughter shouldn't sit before an earl's daughter, and they should eat like this, and they should do like that. But then what makes it brilliant and human is when you see them breaking the rules, and they're uh, what they actually would have done. And in this, Henry is very aware that she should say yes, because that's what happened in proposals. But when it's Margaret, he doesn't know anyone like Margaret, so she could say no. And I think it's the first time in his life that he's met with the possibility of there being a no. And the fact that he still does it, I find quite romantic. Yeah, I think it's, I I agree with you. And I didn't think about it that way. But I also think there's about halfway through the proposal, he says, should I ask a third time? <laughs> like, it's as though he's saying, like, you can say no, but maybe I should just give you one more chance to say yes. It, it is interesting. My favorite bit is when she turns away from him and halfway through her line, it looks as though she's going, fuck. <laughs> it's like she mouths fuck. Yeah, yeah. I love it. And then she runs down the stairs and she does her bit and then oh, I should probably give him a kiss and runs back upstairs and gives him a little kiss. I just think it's it's so... It's really beautiful. good stuff. It's ama- like, it is amazing. Emma Thompson is fantastic in this movie. Uh, it's one of the best performances we've watched for this series. Mm-hmm. But it is amazing she ran the table because it's so internal. It's so quiet. She gets a couple scenes where she gets to yell so she has an Oscar clip or whatever. But sure. like that scene is all just like, you are trying to intuit what she's thinking and she's giving you enough on her face to like kind of get there. But there's a part of her she's holding back. It's 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 She's so good. Thank you, Emma she, Thompson. She's tremendous in this film and I, and I don't know that like in, in a way she's I don't want to say she's stuck in a love triangle, but she is stuck between Henry and Helen, mm-hmm. right? And, and and you can really, you do get the impression that she obviously, you know, blood is thicker than water and she's always going to side with her sister. But at the same time, she is troubled by her sister. When When Helen brings Leonard and Jackie to the wedding, that's the most angry you see Margaret in the film. Yeah, and... And Helen is uh, Helen is caught in a triangle between Margaret and Leonard. It's like yes. a very, it's a very, there's like so many stories that have been adapted from Howard's end. I'm putting air quotes around that, but sure. really it's just like, it's such a natural thing to have kind of a soapy story about upper class people, middle class people and lower class people who are all interconnected and like, you know, uh, have sexy complications and like there's a wonderful uh, play that came out a few years ago called The Inheritance, which is uh, oh, about which would, yeah, directed. which yeah. uses the architecture of Howard's End to tell a story about um, uh, queer history. Basically, uh, it's about a group of gay men uh, and he uses the idea of Howard's End to be like uh, the upper class is like basically the classes are the different generations of gay men and how they're sort of getting away from the specter of AIDS. It's like a really complicated and nuanced work that everyone compared to angels in america for obvious reasons but the author was like no this is howard's end i just did howard's end um there's yeah this story keeps coming up because it's so natural for us to want to talk about class in a way that also allows for sexy complications you know i i i totally agree and i i do i 
don't know. It, it, I, I was watching this. The, the scene that really kind of hit me is after Margaret susses out that Henry had sex with Jackie or what have you. She goes upstairs and there's just a scene of her sobbing. Just a scene of her. She literally like falls to the ground and sobs. And it's the most kind of, I mean, outwardly emotional moment, I think, for Margaret in terms of her just really sort of showing how she feels, which is awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's short, it's brief, and then she moves on and she's like, we can all get past this, right? Like, it's it's all going to be fine. Oh, um, so well. Yeah. Well, actually, the best that, you know, probably one of the only bits worth watching is Mm -hmm. her and Rickman. And yeah, she's amazing. I think I approached this film Mm -hmm. having no recollection of it, knowing that her performance is so highly regarded and obviously won everything. Sure. And so I did I did approach it with a bit of, all right, come on, come on, show me. And it's a it's completely brilliant. It's completely brilliant. And I think it's for two reasons in particular. Mm. One, there's no one in the world, I think, who does what you described earlier, the chatter over the top of each other. No one does that better than her. She's those moments when win her an Oscar. Mm-hmm. And another thing that it's so much patience and control from an actor who knows they're the lead so she knows there's two hours and 20 minutes to show what needs to be shown so within the scene she doesn't need to express everything in the moment she can store it knowing that it can be used later on and she just she's so intelligent with that you can see you can see her markings in the script about when to pocket things and when to use things, and I'm in complete awe of of that. When she finally boils over in the last twenty minutes, it just feels so cathartic, and then she sucks it all back in, and you're like, "Oh, I guess this is that kind of movie, huh?" And you're yeah, like, I, I really did not expect her to get back together with him. Like I was like, oh, so we're done now. Go, oh. go go to Germany with Helen and raise her child, and then it's like. Meanwhile, <laughs> I was like, "Fucking hell!" Yeah, yeah. I, it's just... it's. So, is this Emily and and I'm obviously Tom? I'm uh, curious about yours, but is this your favorite Emma Thompson performance, Emily? Probably. I think she's also very good in Sense and Sensibility. But and like, sensibility. You know, yeah. uh, I think she. I think she's always good like yeah. i i'm sure i'm not thinking of a billion others but i think this is probably her this it's not is harry probably potter her for best. you it's not harry potter i mean you know i love everything about harry potter and i have no problems with that Never franchise at all. um <laughs> i i think i might give i might give sense sensibility the edge a little bit just it's a movie that i have more of a history and more of an affinity with that i've seen many many times and just really love mm-hmm. um i think she's tremendous in this film um tom is it is it your favorite emma thompson or it's either this or sense and sensibility i remember um i think it was an interview with her where she was talking about ang lee Mm. and she said he gave her i'm paraphrasing she probably didn't say this he gave her one of the best notes that she's ever had and it's when Mm -hmm. Rickman, rickman comes in to talk to her and she 
they did the first take and everything is at him and everything's great. And Ang Lee just says, just goes up and physically turns her to the side like that. He says, you're not allowed to turn any closer to him than this. (laughs) And if you watch it again, you'll see the scene because she's so desperately, then you see everything that she really wants to say. So then she doesn't need to give so much because it's all just in the fact that she knows if she turns and looks at him, she's going to die. And so she's there trying to keep everything in control. And it's such a beautiful moment. The other uh, amazing Ang Lee thing I heard, I believe it was from Hugh Grant who said that this happened on Sense of Sensibility, where uh, if Ang Lee didn't like what actors were saying to him, he'd pretend he didn't understand English. which i I think is fucking incredible the other i'm looking through her filmography here the other things that i'm thinking like i Mm. I really i do i kind of hate love actually but i do think she's fantastic in it Um, and uh uh i she gives a really good voice performance in brave the pixar movie she does does. and then i think honestly probably my runner-up for her after um howard's end is the tv movie wit which she made with she's uh, very nichols and she's like i love that play so that like that it has that going for it also i always forget she played a character in cheers the same year a ridiculous character in cheers the same year she did howard's end I, I mean, she's also great in Angels in America, for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mm-hmm. she's overshadowed, perhaps, by Meryl and Al Pacino and yeah. the host of other people in that movie uh, or miniseries. Um, I also have to say, and I, I think this movie is genuinely insane and I can't believe it exists, but she is charming in Junior. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Emily's response is appropriate. There's no... no there's I, no... Uh, I have that was forbidden from seeing that film. Maybe Junior. Oh, really? Because it's yeah. Satan. It's Satan. Well, right? no, you know, because a man got pregnant in it, which might open a door in my brain that might lead to some crazy things. What if it was Junior? What if my trans awakening was Junior? What if it I would... was like? <laughs> I do love that your parents are like you can't see that movie, and I mean, here we are. Uh, I I did not realize that uh, she's also very good in Remains of the Day but I did not realize that like her Oscar run is basically 93, 94, 96 she's never been nominated since which is like a real shame she keeps doing great shit but she gets five nominations and wins two awards in that like three years but she's also like I mean my assumption is that she does whatever she wants, right? Like, I, I don't, I feel like Emma Thompson's career for, I mean, she did two Nanny McPhee movies. It's like, mm-hmm. I think that she does kind of whatever she wants. Um, but to your point, she is, she's a dame now for what that's worth, which yeah. is very little, but it's something. Um, <laughs> Tom's face uh, is perfect. Um, I but it does feel like I won't be knighted. <laughs> But I do feel like she is one of those like bearing walls of like veteran, amazing actors that everyone's just like, yeah, she's always great. Well, what's, what's great about her is she's now um, she, her personality has evolved into um, quirky uh, national treasure. Yes. But that aside, what I love about her is um, she can get British films financed. From what I understand, mm-hmm. so she just wants to help yeah. independent filmmakers get their films funded. So she'll go and do bit parts in things 
if it will help them get funding. And I, I love that about her. Also, she came, I did a play at the beginning of the year and she came to watch it twice and is a big fan of my work. So That's hey. amazing. Can you get her on the show? We're trying to find someone to talk about Beethoven. Someone to talk about Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> Can I you imagine Emma Thompson coming on to talk about Beethoven with us? Fuck. I love this. I think she would have a blast, honestly. I think she would too. I mean, I think she'd have the best time. But... um. It is interesting, though, Emily, you know, she does have her two Oscars, one for adapting Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, which Mm -hmm. she gave one of the all-time best Oscar speeches, where she wrote it as Jane Austen, which is just absolutely incredible. Uh, It's it's tremendous. She basically, she her speech is what Jane Austen would think of all of this. (laughs) And as you can imagine, uh, she thought it was pretty ridiculous. Uh, It's wonderful. Um, I, I imagine she gets another nomination before the end of her career yeah 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 it feels inevitable uh i just need you to know that Mm. uh junior she was nominated for a golden globe for junior uh she was as was arnold schwarzenegger which Uh, good for him no devito no devito yeah i just i love that there was someone for an oscar has devito ever been nominated for an oscar I don't think I, mean, I think his yeah. chance or what he thought was his chance was the film we caught, talked about earlier, Hoffa. I think yeah. he thought Hoffa was going to be his big Oscar movie. And, yeah, uh, I, it was not. I, I wondered, I kind of wondered if he was nominated for, um, uh, uh, what's it called? One Flew Over the Cuckoo. But no, he was not. No. Yeah. No, poor, not, poor Danny DeVito. Well, I think he's doing just fine. But I, I uh, he I, has, he has been nominated for an Oscar, Phil. He's been nominated for an Oscar for producing Aaron Brockovich. Of course. How could I forget? Uh, yeah. Yes. Jersey films. Uh, so there you go. Um, and he was thanked by Julia Roberts when she won her Oscar. So there you go. That's, you know, by osmosis, he's got a bit of an Oscar. Um, I, there is a, a, a moment that I want to just highlight very quickly, uh, which is after, after the wedding, when it's, uh, Henry's been outed and Henry turns to Margaret and is like, you got me. You, 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 you fucking trapped me. Um, and then he runs off like a little bitch out into the woods. <laughs> It's amazing to me that I'm just like, Henry, have a little bit of pride. I love that he's genuinely terrifying. Correct. When he, Correct. no, it's like I said, when the million voices yeah. thoughts and he gets that one and fucking nails it mm-hmm. and then just skips up like olive oil with their hands flailing in the air. I love it. It's it's tremendous. It's it's really great. Um, I, I, I want to talk about... When was the last to- time Henry ran, though? When was the last time he ran? This is when's what I want to know. When's These the last the time? When's the last, when's the last time all of us ran? For me, it was last uh, Friday. I haven't so. ran in a long time. Okay, too long. Yeah. Um, there are two other things like that I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> two quick things I wanted to bring up. The first was um, near the end of the film, Leonard is trying to find uh, the Schnagels, um, and he has these dreams slash flashbacks where like he has this kind of dream where he imagines himself behind the gate um when when in the rain when they met with the umbrellas and he's reaching Mm. through the bars to try to get to helen this is after they've had sex in the rowboat of course um and then he also has these like visions flashbacks of like him walking through the howard's end with this like dusk and it's it's almost as though he sees all these like possibilities and potential that could have transpired with him and these and these this family 
that he kind of let slip through his fingers in a way. Am I, am I reading too much into it? Or what did you guys think of that stuff? I think the film is linking him with Ruth, the only other character oh. who has similar fantasy sure. sequences, because they are both people trapped by circumstances they don't think they can escape. So yeah. they escape into an imagined vision of some other life. Um, like he does the thing when he's sitting at work and then he imagines himself sitting in a forest somewhere, which yeah. is a real, like, let, let's be honest, it's a Ruth Wilcox move. So. <laughs> classic Ruth move yeah I, I I think that's I think that's probably the the the, the right way to look at it I, I just I, I like that this movie has these little kind of pockets of I don't want to say surrealism necessarily but sort of magic realism that exists <laughs> within it which I think is really um I, I in a weird way I almost feel like I just don't feel like anyone talks about that stuff within the context of Merchant Ivory like I just don't feel as though those movies feel as groundbreaking or as sort of esoteric and kind of weird as they are that makes Mm. sense yeah i think um i was thinking a lot about james cameron watching this film as you'd expect who doesn't sure i think the thing about merchant ivory when they work is they walk a tightrope between the rich are awful selfish assholes who destroy everything they touch and but they have great clothes and houses and wouldn't you like to have great clothes and house it's very similar to how james cameron is constantly between i hate the american military and everything it stands for but they have helicopters and helicopters don't they have the coolest toys yeah and so it's like it is this like and they if they teeter too far in either direction their movies fall apart but when they walk the tightrope like they do here like they do in remains of the day etc etc it's just a perfect it perfectly exemplifies why we hate the rich and also kind of why we want to be the rich. And like, I I think that that they capture that better than almost anybody working in this field. Yeah. I, I, I I want to talk about Leonard's death for a second because it's, it's a pretty horrifying scene just in the way that it all kind of lays itself out. Cause it's, it's so it's the most kind of naked and bare the film is where you have Charles, this, rich fucking asshole son of henry's essentially kind of like sorry eric trump he reminded me yes yes he does have an eric trump vibe and he's essentially spanking leonard with a sword well i i i laughed out loud at that where's a stick fetch me a stick someone fetch me a stick i loved that it, but it, I mean, it's such a rich person's like, how do I, it's like, how do I shoe a raccoon with a fucking broom, right? Like, how do I, how do I get this dirty peasant out of my house? Um, and it's, it's so bare at this point where you're just seeing someone. Um, it, it's just it, the way he treats Leonard in this moment. And we don't know that Leonard is sick necessarily, although it's hinted at in an earlier scene where he seems to be kind of weak and he looks a little ill. Um, But he essentially kind of spanks him a bunch until this bookshelf falls on him and kills him. Um, The slow motion bookshelf falling shot. When I saw it, I was like, I feel like I've seen this shot before. Like it feels like an iconic shot from Howard's end. Am I crazy? I was just thinking about how this movie handles it so much better than the miniseries, which okay. it's it's fundamentally kind of a ridiculous thing. You get killed by a bookcase falling. I'm not saying it's unrealistic. That happens yeah, yeah, and can sure, happen, sure. especially if you have a weak heart. Um, but sure. 
it is, uh, especially if you're a baby. I have to anchor all my bookcases. Oh my god, the baby's Babies starting are to walk. Um, no, the uh, uh, but yeah, like it, I think that this movie captures it in a horrific way, whereas the the miniseries kind of presents it matter of factly. I think the miniseries mm-hmm. is very well worth watching, especially if you like this story and or Haley Atwell and or Matthew McFadden. They're all very it's, good. It's, it's got a really great cast. Yeah. And I, 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 as I was saying, Emily, before we got on mic, Tom, I, I didn't. Do you have you seen the the PBS? No, I haven't. It's so Kenneth Lonergan adapted it, um, and it's Haley Atwell, Thomas McFadden. Um, forgive me, Emily. Who else is in it? Uh, it's uh, Tracy Ullman plays uh, Aunt yes. Julie. Um, right, right. There's a lot of people who are like not immediate household names in in the U.S. Sure, but uh, it was written by a Lonergan. So yeah. So oh, it's uh, yeah, and it's on right now. You and Julie Ormond is in it. That's the other person that I she plays Ruth um but uh yeah it's i mean listen this movie which ends with a death of of leonard then kind of yada yadas it a little bit like they just kind of you know they wheel him out of there and they kind of backfill that he had heart disease and that he was probably going to die anyway it seems and then you have this scene with charles where it doesn't really seem as though the cops are particularly interested in him as as like as the perpetrator of said death like i I don't know the the scene didn't play out to me like they were taking him away but then later we find out through henry that like not that super slow-mo shot of him coming through the crowd to the train station but that's after that's after the scene with with henry yes it is what what i found really striking was henry Naughty boys uh, need to be spanked. <laughs> sure. That's my t-shirt. Uh, um, I'm making you that t-shirt. Tom, that's, don't worry. that's the that's the, you know the old old-fashioned private boarding school. You're naughty. You're spanked. And you could tell in the previous scene where Henry is saying basically you need to go down and clear them out of Howard's End. No matter what it takes, you get rid of them. And is then called Sir by his son. And they shake hands to, you know, there's nothing paternal about him. Very Edwardian. Naughty boys need to be spanked. Very Edwardian. Mm. What I then found really striking was that you begin to see Henry suggest to the coroner that he had heart troubles, didn't he? So what's your... Your, what's your conclusion going to be? It's probably going to be that he had a, a dicky heart and that's what did it. Then he hears his son say, yeah, I spanked him with the sword. I may have done it a couple of times. Yeah, I spanked him a few times with the sword, but only on the flat side. Henry deciding hmm. that the right thing to do is throw his son under the bus. Or not even throw his son under the bus. That's the wrong phrase to let justice take its course with yes. his son when yes. i fully expected him to defend his son and i can't work out the logic of the shift in character and it's whether it's the the right proper thing to do if there was a miscarriage of justice justice needs to be served but it's going to cause a scandal mm-hmm. it's much more of uh, the sort of thing that margaret would do which i find the most interesting thing mm-hmm. is yeah. that she has uh he has evolved because of her she's devolved but he's evolved because of her and that's the prime example of it 
And that's why you see, and you know, he's weak at the end because of the distress of what a year that he's had. But well, yeah, he's he's legit crying, saying pretty- like, "I don't know what to do." You know, like he seems kind of at his wit's end. They've uh, they've met in the middle, really- mostly shitty. Yeah. <laughs> and it you know it really it struck me and it stayed with me about that decision of his and i can't work out whether forster was trying to have some kind of atonement and salvation for him leading up to the sinister final line of i didn't do anything wrong did i mm-hmm. and i don't know why forster did it if it's mm-hmm. for that purpose forgiving him i I, it's interesting to me how complicated henry is as a character to sort of watch even though i'm also kind of convinced that he's very binary in the way he sees the world if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um but the but the end of this film when we fast forward and you know helen's living at howard's end with them and there seem to be two children which would lead me to believe that I guess Henry and Margaret had a child. Is that what we're led to believe? Because... I thought that there's, I think, isn't the other child. Oh, you're um... right. You're right. It's, it's Charles and what's her face's kid, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, is um, it? Yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought it was some, just some local kid. <laughs> no, 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 really. That was another possibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, they really? should, they, you know, the last shot is like a constable painting. It's so beautiful. The That's car, right. the city leaves. And then it's a horse-drawn plow on the field and everything, you know, beautiful and it's It's the countryside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and she she allows her her son to play with the the toothless old peasant children. Also possible. Um, It's... it's, It's really interesting how, and it's obviously intentional, that we we have this potential breakup between Margaret and, and Henry. We have this death. We have this sort of big crescendo climax of this, uh, of this film. And then a epilogue, I guess, if you want to call it or whatever you want to call it of this sort of final, which is all idea. Like everything's fine. Everything's great. We learned absolutely nothing. No one learned a fucking thing from any of this. Um, and uh, life's grand credits. It, it's just, it, it is very interesting. A whole bunch of misery had to happen for Margaret to get the things she was always supposed to get, <laughs> oh, which, is, which is human life, if you will. <laughs> it's, it's tremendous. Uh, so let's rate this movie. Um, I, as I mentioned, had not seen this film prior to this podcast. I was at an 82 when I came in here, and now I'm at a 90. I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a pretty... Uh, tremendous film and it's certainly um, made me want to go watch a bunch of Merchant Ivory films Um, you know Emily and I talked a little bit before we got on mic about the five best picture nominees which were uh, Unforgiven, Howard's End, Scent of a Woman, A Few Good Men and The Crying Game Um, five pretty disparate films very different films Um, this I think is a close second for me for Unforgiven like it's it it really uh, it's really pretty pretty incredible Sing. Mm. Uh, what's your rating, Emily? Um, I saw this at some point in time, probably in my 20s, and I think I would have given it like a 88. I would have been like, sure. that was a nice movie. Um, rewatching it, I I was really struck by it. It it moved into my top five or whatever on my letterbox mm. list of, of this year. Um, mm. I, I'm gonna say 90 
94. Okay. Yeah, 94. Like, I think it's a really fantastic film, and any quibbles I have are mostly with the source material, which relies a little bit on coincidence for my taste. So, <laughs> is it of the, of sort of the three banger? Uh, Merchant Ivories, is it your favorite of the three or is Remains of the Day? I think it's my favorite. I think it would be this and then Room with a View and then Remains with the Day and then Maurice. Morris? Maurice. Maurice? Tom, what about you? When did you see this uh, for the first time out of curiosity? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> okay. It might have been, you know, this last week was the first okay. time. Okay. I okay. don't recall watching okay. it all the way through. I know that there are bits that I've seen but then I knew that there were bits of Remains of the Day that I'd seen sure. and bits of View that I'd seen, and they all became the Merchant Ivory haze. Sure. Mm-hmm. And there were mm-hmm. certainly shots that I recognised watching it now. So before, if I did watch it, it was a long, long time ago, and I can't even give it a rating. It was just Blair from sure. the past. Um, but then... As I said, I watched Room with the View only a few months ago and loved it. So I w- I did come into this expecting it to be in the eighties. It's it's high nineties. I'm going to go ninety five. I loved it. I'd watch it again tomorrow, and I'd watch it again the day after. Performances, direction, the look of it, it's grand. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. You know the the one thing but we I'm didn't talk about. To, I'm not going to tell anyone that I loved it. <laughs> yeah, good, good. No one will hear this. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I I think we didn't talk about this, but it's just worth noting very quickly. The score is tremendous, and the use yeah. of the score is really really uh, powerful. I I will say I had a similar thing where I was trying to describe the plot of this movie to my wife before we watched it, and I mm-hmm. mixed it up with a bunch of other things because, like, even though Howard's End has a pretty clean plot, it influenced so much stuff that uh yeah you know and like i always in my brain i'm like it and remains of the day are a little interchangeable even though they're very different movies and very different books just because of the 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 hopkins thompson connection so um well tom thank you for coming and talking with us about uh thanks tom we we appreciate it Um, we look forward to um uh, social I personally can't wait to talk uh, Muppet Christmas Carol with you uh, when we do that uh, sometime before Christmas. Swimming around right? Lawnmower Man. Swimming <laughs> around be, it. It's... I kind of forget that that film exists, and so am I, frankly. <laughs> I, I really do. Um, I've never seen Muppet Christmas Carol, guys. So I'm, I am, I'm sorry. Bill? I, yes. I watch it every single year without fail. Bill, every you know, Christmas. You know the you know the Christmas Carol story, right? Scrooge and the ghosts and stuff. I do, I do, but it's with the Muppets. that. It's that with Muppets. Yeah. <laughs> so is it <laughs> okay? Uh, Michael Caine said it, it's the favorite of his films. I love it. He's fantastic I, I truly, in it. Yeah, I truly can't it. wait. It feels like generationally, um, it is sort of the Christmas movie of a generation. It feels mm-hmm. like, um, which I think is is kind of amazing. Um, but I can't wait to talk about it with you. We'll talk about that in the future. But um, there's no way for anyone to follow you on social media, Tom. So I'm not going to point them in any directions to do such things uh, because you're smarter than I am. Um, smarter. Smarter? Smarter? More intelligent? Oh, no, I think it's smugness. It's pure smugness. It's because, no, no, I, you know, yeah. secretly I am trapped in a Forster novel. Yeah. <laughs> well, Okay. 
I um, just like yes, if I'm... I want to reach Tom, I know if I open a Zoom window, he might show up. So. <laughs> There's like a 30% chance he's going to be on that Zoom, it's which is like pretty, pretty good. Like when you try to summon a leprechaun or something. And like, yeah. Uh, well, thank you again, Tom. And uh, we'll talk soon. Bye. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.